Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest wherein a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about just kidding. You're actually listening to my podcast junk. What's up? I'm Tommy Pico, and this is Junk. A Talk That Talk interview podcast wherein I ask a treasure trove of cultural luminaries about the relics, keepsakes, and rando baubles in their apartments, sussing out the stories of their junk. This week, we have a really exciting episode for you. It's a Food for Thought crossover show that's food, the number four, and thought spelled T-H-O-T for gay sluts who love to read. It happens to be the other podcast that I co-host. So today, our guests are Fran Torado, Joseph Osmondson, and Dennis Norris II, Nobody's Junior. Fran Torado is a writer, editor, queer community maker, glitter evangelist, and Taurus the Explorer extraordinaire. Fran Torado. Yes, Tommy. Will you show me your junk? Mm, am I ready for this phase in our relationship? I'm not sure. Um, so this is a card that my sister gave me. You can't see it, but it is hand-stitched um, with like a, it's like right normal paper, but it's hand-stitched with a needle and thread very poorly done i will say like it's, it's, it, it looks like like murderer handwriting yeah it looks like murder or like doctor yeah or like doctor <laughs> and um it says on the front you're the motherfucking comeback kid and it it's it's kind of cheeky and funny like it looks it looks funny and weird and i have it sitting on my mantle at all times um mm. my in my bedroom um because it came to me at a time where i did not feel like anything uh, like a comeback kid, I did not feel any sort of like high. I didn't feel any sort of like I didn't feel good at all when I got this card. The last year was a really tough one for me, in large part because of obvious reasons. Queer and marginalized people are having a tough time in this country right now, but also for a lot of personal reasons, a lot of like mental health reasons, a lot of work reasons. It was just really hard for me to be there for anybody, mm-hmm. and I didn't know it at the time, but. My sister had a really, really tough year at the same time that I did as well. Um, She was going through breakup. She was going through health issues. She was going through all these different things that I didn't really know about. And I didn't know about them because I didn't ask. Are you close? I, my sister and I have a weird, we are close when we see each other. Mm. But my sister and I are still a little distance because... I mean, we're extremely similar and have the exact same sense of humor. We have the exact same approaches to life in some ways, but she's an evangelical Christian. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so has like a slightly different viewpoint on slightly life. And, and that doesn't necessarily separate our ideologies. Like she's an amazing person and, and we get along just fine. But 
does create a little bit of distance between us, especially in the way that I came out. Um, like when I came out to my family, my sister was took it the hardest and she didn't speak to me for like weeks. Oh, wow. We lived in the same house at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't speak to me for weeks. Um, so our relationship has been, you know, in repair ever since. Mm. And I separate myself from my family kind of intentionally. I have a really hard time um, reaching out to them or being present for them in Girl, general. Same. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's hard. It is. Um, it really is. And, and, and to, maybe you're like this as well, but I'm I'm so much too in the moment yeah. that it's sometimes hard for me to remember people on the other side of the country. Exactly. Yeah, I'm very like out of sight, out of mind kind of girl. And with my sister specifically, I she had a really tough year and I had no idea because uh, and I couldn't really be there for her. I couldn't be there for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, like my closest friends or like people in my circles, let alone someone who was living um, in Chicago, you know, thousands of miles away. Because it sounds like you were even having a hard time being there for yourself. Yeah. And it's like, if you can't be there for yourself, how in the hell are you going to be there for somebody else? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of what we we're experiencing. And I didn't really find out about a lot of the things that happened to her until much after the fact. And by that point, it was too late. She was really hurt. And she was really sad that I wasn't there for her because she looks up to me immensely and i i know that so it's it's it was kind of on me to to reach out to my sister and to be there for her the point of that story is that like we had really tough years and the outcome of that was a phone call with my sister wherein she told me why she was really upset and said that she was gonna have a hard time forgiving me Mm. and was very honest about it and explained why. And that was kind of the the end of the phone call. Didn't have any sort of resolution. Mm -hmm. She was just mad. Mm -hmm. And I felt really shitty. And so maybe like six months later, I was, I had just left my job in, at an ad agency. I was trying to figure out my finances. I was trying to figure out how to make this podcast food for thought. I was trying to figure out how to balance off my various projects and still have a steady income. And I was not succeeding. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like financially very (laughs) unwell. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like calling my parents and seeing if I could borrow money. Like, I was, like, cashing my coin jar at the bank, like, all of those little steps, those desperate steps, like, selling my clothes at Beacon's Closet, like, I was doing everything. For, like, kind of- $5. Yeah, for, like, yeah. literally $5. Like, I was just in the worst. Oh, I've been there. At the lean times, that's when my friends were calling me yeah. poverty. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was selling That's everything. So like the, one of the reasons why I I'm pretty lean in terms of junk right now is because I literally had I sold everything. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. But that's that I I know that stage of like desperation where you're just like everything must go mm-hmm. like giant signs fifty percent off like that's how I was feeling feeling very desperate very out of control and when you're a Taurus is out of control it's just it's just not it's not cute and so around Christmas time actually it wasn't uh, it wasn't during Christmas it was probably like late November or early de- early December so it wasn't even like a Christmas moment mm-hmm. but I get this card in the mail and I, I wasn't expecting it because again it wasn't Christmas it wasn't like there was nothing that prompted it I had not spoken to my sister anytime recently but I had spoken to my parents and had told them like my grievances and I guess my parents told my sister mm-hmm. about what was going on with me and I open up the card and I see the hand stitched you're the motherfucking comeback kid on the the front of this card and i immediately start crying Mm. um because this line you're the motherfucking comeback kid is the final line in a very raunchy poem uh i wrote about gay sex eight 
and a half years ago. Oh, wow. And this is a deep cut. This is a deep, deep cut. I actually still like the poem, honestly. It's a really cute poem, even though it's not representative of my work now. But (laughs) the whole poem is about. It'll go in the juvenilia. Right. Later on. And and the whole poem is about is like obviously about coming back, but also about like revenge going high when they go low. Mm. And it was a poem that. My parents never read my poetry. It was too raunchy for them. It was too, like, secular for them. My sister never read my poetry either, or so I thought. And so I guess my sister had found the poem on my Tumblr or on my website or something and had kept it for eight years. And had never told you. And never told me that she had ever read it eight years ago. And I had just no... I had no idea that she had even consumed my work because... I am so, I was, when I'm around my parents or my sister, I'm so ashamed of it mm. um, because I grew up conservative. Right. And that the, the, there's like some kind of division between the person you are in New York and the person you are when you're back home. And it's almost like the idea of those things mixing is, it's not a transgression, but it's not something that you expect. I, I, exactly. And I think I was, I was taken aback and I thought maybe it was just a coincidence and then I opened up the card and it says, hey, Fran, man, I once read this really awesome poem, <laughs> which had a line that kept popping into my head when I heard about your financial situation. I'm so sorry. I just got a Christmas bonus. So I hope that this helps. And inside Aww. of the card was a $250 check. Oh, wow. From my sister, who is three years younger than me. <laughs> um, no shame. And I, yeah, I, I, and then I cried even more. And I think it, The big thing about this, the reason I have this card sitting in my mantle is because I I constantly tell myself that I'm a monster. Mm -hmm. I play into the caricature of monster frequently because it gets me what I want or it helps me along in my various jobs or it helps me just have a better work ethic or whatever. Mm -hmm. I constantly think of myself as this like emotionless monster who's just very adamant about getting what he needs. Especially in New York. That is extremely advantageous exactly yeah and and new york has hardened me to that mindset unfortunately and when i wasn't there for my sister at a time that she needed me i kind of let it wash off my back in the same way Mm. i was kind of like it's okay i'm a monster anyways like this is expected of me um i'm not a good person right and if you're like rewarded for that behavior or like it's it doesn't really have that many consequences. I mean, because it because in New York everything is moving so quickly. You don't have as many emotional ties. It's not like they're family, and yeah. so if they do have a problem with it, you never hear about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe at, you get a subtweet every now of, and then, but yeah. it doesn't really come back to you the <laughs> out same of sight, way. out of mind. Exactly, and and I think I I had just resolved to being this this nasty thing, and uh, despite me not being there for my sister, despite me not being a very good brother, years later, my sister still reached back out to me and extended this very human, very beautiful gesture that a monster is not really worthy of. Mm. And so this card kind of reminds me that I'm not a monster, that I don't have to be one, and that there are reasons why people in my life don't think I'm one too, Yeah, even though I'm constantly trying to play that version of my caricature. Thank you so much, Fran. No problem, Tommy. Joseph Osmondson is a scientist, nonfiction writer, verse crop top, anal lingerer, and the softest bowl of soft serve you'll ever meet. Okay, well, I want to note that uh, prior to recording this 
Joseph did not show me. So I'm getting the reveal at the same time that everybody else is. Teebs has never seen my junk. So Joseph Osmondson. Yes. Will you show me your junk? (sighs) (laughs) Yes, baby, I will. So I actually, I have a weird relationship to my junk because... You know, I don't, I don't, in New York, we don't have space. There's just no space to hoard shit. Mm-hmm. And my parents live in a big house in the country, but my mom is like an anti-junk manifesto, okay. if you will. Okay, and I so will. And so she like gets rid of shit all the time. And she kept sending me all my stuff, mm-hmm. like stuff that I want to keep, like baby books and yearbooks and stuff that I'm going to want when I'm old. Well, you really like, do. I don't, okay, so you're going to want those things later. I'm going to want those okay. things, but I don't have space for them. Right. So I have one box that's like a giant junk drawer and it is only things that are very dear to me. So it's been very tightly curated already. And I brought two pieces of junk Ooh, okay. um, from the same era of my life. You're going to DP me with some junk. Huh? I am going to stick all of my junk inside <laughs> you. The first one is short Trash. and quick. And it's like totally not functional, which is why it's like the best junk. But I'll never, ever get rid of it. It is a broken TI-83 wow. calculator that I got that we were forced to buy freshman year of high school. Yeah, I remember. I played nibbles on that shit like a motherfucker. This is back in the day for all you kids out there, for all you Generation Z or whatever. All I knew from this com- this computer, from this calculator, <laughs> was I knew how to make it. I knew how to make it say boobless when you turned it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I was in the back of class playing nibbles. But I um, what's nibbles? Uh, nibbles. It's like a, it's like a game where you have a snake and you have to eat little pixels on the screen. All right? right. And so you just move it around the screen. So we were very um, easy to we were very easy to entertain back in the day we didn't yeah, really need that much i mean you didn't have that much so like i lived in the country this was and my parents were like no video games for you but uh i always say and i've said this on the other podcast we do that mathematics was my first access to the sublime mm-hmm. so um the calculator actually sitting by myself in my room doing math homework and learning kind of the more advanced mathematics that you would need you know a graphing calculator for and playing it was play it's like put in different formulas and see the shapes that they make that was You're really disgusting i know i'm so sorry <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so the other thing from that Wait, same... Wait, can I ask you, though, mm-hmm. why have you kept this? And it's totally not functional. It literally just is a memory that brings me back to the moment when I first learned that problem solving felt transcendent to me. And I'm just interested because it's not enough to have the moment, but yeah. it's but to have the object to remember the moment by. Teebs, you know that feeling? I went into the junk drawer, and I don't go in there very often. It's at the bottom of my closet now. So it's this box. And I went in there, and I pulled a bunch of stuff out. But when I pulled this out, I just smiled, sort of mm. involuntarily. Right. Um, I do think about that time in my life, and I think about the access that that books and mathematics and learning gave me to escape myself and to escape my body. Mm-hmm. I think about that often, but the object sort of brings it back in a way that, that the memories don't hold by themselves. Well, it makes it impossible to escape. Right, right, right. Well, I, I mean, I could have thrown it away, right? And then in which case I wouldn't have that sort of reaction. When what part of you would you be throwing away? Oh, teams. Uh-huh. A trash monster middle school <laughs> smelly Jerkwad. Um, my other piece of trash is for, or of junk. Because junk trash, is not trash. Just, uh, it's from you know, that same put era. It out there. Pre-digital camera. I took a photography class. So I wanted to bring a math thing uh-huh. and a photography and an art thing. And I thought I was going to be a photographer because I was like, it's like science, but art. Um, and so I had, these are prints that I shot and developed myself. I just they have to are, say, like, for the people who cannot see this, this is a humongous, this is a yes. humongous, what would you portfolio. call this? Portfolio. Portfolio. Okay, that's what you're calling it. Okay. So bad. $30. Okay, so, so Joe's I put once, prices so I on once all of these sold pictures. Them. I once sold them. 
Here, these are actually the only ones that I like. These are um, black and whites that I took long uh, on a tripod uh, with long exposures of fireworks. These are and, all fireworks pictures, by um, the way. So those, those I really like. Here's a picture of a, a kid I knew uh, rollerblading. Okay, He's doing so, a jump. I caught him midair. Um, um, this is a picture of a blader. This is a picture of a chair. Okay. <laughs> it was so artsy. It was so bad. And I got to say, too, so, so Joseph has priced these at between thir- at between $25 and $35. <laughs> this, was, this had to be in the 90s, though. So that was a lot of money. So that's all. But I also mounted some. We will absolutely post these for the audience at home. Um, so um, in this whirlwind picture... <laughs> That I'm looking at right now, it is a uh, a barking dog who's in a tizzy of some sort. She's chasing a ball. She's about to catch the ball in her mouth. There's about to be balls in her mouth. In my I junk. see the I see the I see the open mouth. I see the yeah. bouncy. I see the tennis ball. Yep. Um, yep, yep. Otherwise, you know, this is like one of those magic eye pictures. I just can't really. I don't really know. What <laughs> to make are you right? Are you ready for the best one? Okay. The big reveal. So this was a, an assignment we had to do a double exposure, and I I brought lights home. I rented them from the school, uh, and it took so a picture you were of a, so of serious a friend. about was, this. Don't, that's the whole point. That's why I find these so endearing and why I can't get rid of them because they're so bad but I thought they were so good and I was so serious about it look at that wow. one <laughs> that, that is a view from the deck in my house That's and so it's good. just a bunch of trees and then I took a put lights in my basement and set up a studio and I took a menacing picture of a man and I sort of placed him like God over <laughs> over my backyard and it's a very corny sort of like sci-fi sort of thing <laughs> so um, uh, okay so so this this picture that Joe has taken and, and, and manipulated, I want to point out it's it's like a it's like a god face in the middle of like a forest. Um, yes, and I do I see that as being, for example, on like um like a a bookmark at like a Christian bookstore, <laughs> and it says like Oh Lord my God, and I an awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more. It was meant to be menacing, so it was meant to be more like, oh, oh, that's oh, my, the my way God. I believe my that's God, my God. Why have you? God. Yeah, that's the old. It's the why God. have you forsaken me moment? Yeah, okay. Like, why are you? Why are you punishing me? So, as a proto homosexual, I think that's that's sort of what it is. But I, I, these two things kind of go together for me because I wanted both ever since I was little. I wanted to be an artist, and I wanted to be uh, a scientist or mathematician. They both. Allowed me to access things in myself that I really loved, um, but I was really bad at photography, and so I just love that little guy, that well, little guy who worked so hard on something and thought he was doing great. And you are, I, I, this is how I know we're close because <laughs> you were willing to trot these out for me. And <laughs> did you know I have no shame? Okay, but the other thing Do you is, follow like, me who, on Twitter. Okay, but who the fuck is good at anything in middle school? Right, no, you know what I mean. True. Middle school, high school, whatever. Like I could try some stuff out for you right now, and I, but I won't because I destroyed all that like everybody else did <laughs> like all normal with be- motherfuckers where is it's like the one thing that i have put away in this tiny box of things i've thrown away like 95 percent of the things from that time of my life but for whatever reason these like early attempts at art um i just don't want to get rid of this message comes from iheart radio sponsor mercury insurance if you're looking to save some money you should really think about getting a quote from mercury because californians save an average of 677 dollars with mercury It's quick and easy, and in just a few minutes, you might find you could save a lot of money on your auto and home insurance. Plus, Mercury was named one of America's best insurance companies by Insure.com four years in a row. Low rates, big discounts, great insurance. Go to MercuryInsurance.com today to get a quote. It's crazy how much we have to pay for outdated, impersonal health care, and even crazier that we all just accept it. It's time to face facts. Healthcare is backwards. Luckily, there's forward 
a new approach to primary care that's surprisingly personal and refreshingly straightforward. Forward never makes you feel like just another patient. Backed by top-rated doctors and the latest tech, Forward gives you access to personalized care whenever you need it. Using in-depth genetic analysis and real-time blood work, Forward's top-rated doctors provide you with in-depth insights to better understand your genetics, mental, and physical health. They then create custom, easy-to-understand plans to help guide you to achieving long-term health. With Forward, you get unlimited in-person visits with your doctor and access to care anytime via the Forward app, all for one flat monthly fee. It's time to stop accepting backwards healthcare and start moving your health forward. Visit GoForward.com today to learn more. That's GoForward.com. At Capella University, education is as smart as the world around us. With the FlexPath format, you can take classes at your own pace, set your own deadlines, and even leverage your previous experience to move faster. Now that's smart. Learn more at capella.edu. Hey, I'm Gabrielle Collins, period drama nerd, and your behind-the-scenes guide to Bridgerton. On Bridgerton, the official podcast, we're learning how this fantasy world dipped in history came to life. Daphne, her costume design really is about the elegance of simplicity. It's just color and shape. We went old school and we got two scenic artists in who painted the backings for us by hand. These dukes are all like in their late 20s, early 30s. Almost all of them are unmarried, really good looking and none of them have syphilis. Can you imagine when he looks into your eyes and then he dips you? We just heard this sort of ripping sound. Yep, I think there's just been a wardrobe malfunction. Listen to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your favorite shows. For whatever reason, though, I think there, I think you know the reason there. Yeah, I, I I love that little child. I love his um his attempts and his earnestness, and that he just found it joyful. And there is also uh, what I'm understanding in this boldness and the boldness mm. of doing this and mounting <laughs> this and 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 and, and signing selling them, them and selling them is that there is like a confidence to mm, that person yeah. that like they aren't jaded. Yeah, there's no. Uh, uh, there's no reason for them to question themselves. This, Why would they do that? Because they're doing yeah. something that they really like. And, and of course, like this is kind of what, like it's like the way in which you pattern yourself after people who you idolize as a child yeah. and you're just kind of like, oh, this is how we do things, right? Yeah. This was a person who hadn't yet learned imposter syndrome because I hadn't yet been out of my little town where everyone was the same. I mean, mm. we were all poor. I was nerdy, so I was kind of bullied, but like there was no, I, there was no reason to be an imposter around these people. I felt special there in a way that as soon as I learned how big the world was outside of that place, I lost that feeling of specialness. Can I ask you, have you kept all of your photographs or these are the only ones? These are the only ones from these are these are the ones that I went into a dark room and and printed myself. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do I also like them for that reason, that this is a technology that essentially no one really uses anymore. And it's something that I learned how to do. um, And I was really proud of that at the time that I knew how to go into a dark room and do this really hard thing. Mm. Uh. Would you say, like Lydia Dietz, that at the time your life was a dark room? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bitch. Okay, I I don't want to belabor this point any Mm. further, but um, the way that I'm seeing, I also, at a certain time in my 
uh, childhood, I would call it high school years or whatever. Like I, I was also really attracted to photography yeah. and I did develop stuff as well. And then I showed it to people and I hung it on my wall yep, and yep. like later people would come through and laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if you see anything in anything in queerness mm. or anything in otherness um, mm. in in taking in, in it's almost like I don't want to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. It's almost like not participating in the world, but looking at the world. It's voyeurism. Yeah, I was yeah. literally just going to say that. So the one series that I don't have because it was literally bought for $250, which was so much money to me back then by wow. the superintendent of my school of the entire Arlington Washington schools it was a series I didn't did my you final report project. that income uh, 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 yes yes tax man I did so there were these photos that I took of um kids at a food festival so it was all these like all these images <laughs> of like I find that so funny. of of children experiencing the joy of of a new taste and and it's capturing I mean that's what photography you know Sontag has that beautiful book on photography that she says it allows us to capture these moments and that actually those moments are a lie in a way those mo- those moments are oh for sure you know so yeah. but it allows us to 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 see and not be seen and to capture someone else's joy and to sort of inhabit their joy in a way that I think is very typical for young queer people mm. uh, it's hard mm. to sort of imagine having that moment yourself uh and as someone who felt very outside of lots of types of joy at that time in my life, having that way to access it and keep it and call it my own and keep the image and put it up on my wall or put it into a book hmm. uh, sort of allowed me to own the joy of others, I guess. So then in a way, like keeping these, keeping this particular junk, keeping these photographs yeah. is kind of like a testament to how far you've come as a person who observed moments of joy to a person who can partake in yeah. moments of joy. Yeah. But, and it also is a reminder to never lose that the innocence and the earnestness of the child that I was, uh, to, to hold on to, to transcend what I wasn't, but to hold on to what I was. And being one of the softest people that I know, Joe, mm. I don't think you're going to have a problem. With Aww, that. baby. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Norris II, nobody's junior, is a writer, reader, former figure skater, laps violist, and around the way girl. My neck, my back, <laughs> my pussy, and my crap. Here we go. Yes. Dennis Norris II, nobody's junior. Woo! Will you show me your junk? Girl, all <laughs> I want to do is show you my junk. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. So, what am I, I looking like, at? What am I looking at here? Okay. So you're looking at a picture in a beautiful sort of silver frame. (laughs) I gotta give you the history. (laughs) And the picture is a picture of me. It's actually four pictures in one, kind of, Mm -hmm. of me at what turned out to be my last figure skating competition. Oh, This was my last figure skating competition of my competitive skating career. I was, I think, 15. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the picture, there's one larger picture of me in the opening pose for my routine. Oh, this isn't Pledge Allegiance? Because you have your hand over your heart like your Pledge of Allegiance. I do. That's exactly what it looks like. And it was actually just the opening pose of my choreography. Gotcha. And then three other um, photos of me at different moments in my routine. And I'm in the costume. I was skating to the soundtrack from the movie Henry V. A regular Um, uh, Shakespeare? (laughs) 
Yes. Oh my God. I can't even. <laughs> and it looks very Shakespearean. I'm in I'm in this like costume with puffed sleeves and like a velvet vest, and it's all very gay and and very figure skatey. Um, and so, yeah, that's the picture. That's what you're looking at. And it says uh, Skate Chautauqua 2002. Yes. Okay. Girl, Skate Chautauqua. Whatever. I don't know how to pronounce things. <clears throat> I, so. always like, I always like to tell people, like, if you remember that moment when Tara Lipinski won the Olympics and she, like, screamed and jumped up and down and, like, looked crazy in the kiss and cry because she won the Olympics. Mm. That was my reaction when I won Skate Chautauqua. <laughs> uh, will, you, will you tell us what the kiss and cry is? So the kiss and cry is that area when you watch a figure skating competition where after the skater has finished their program and they step off the ice, their coach, their coach hands them their guards and they walk over to the kiss and cry, which is the area where you receive your scores. Mm-hmm. You wait for your scores. You receive mm-hmm. your scores. And you will often kiss your coaches on the cheek. That used to be a formality thing that would happen in figure skating. And you'd cry if you didn't do well. You'd, you'd kiss if you did well. You'd cry if you didn't do well. Mm. So they call it the kiss and cry. Sounds like a seal song, to be honest with you. <laughs> anyway, will you tell me a little bit more of the significance of this picture? I mean, I just have to say that there is no uh, bone in my body that is surprised that the junk of Dennis Norris II, nobody's <laughs> junior, is a picture of themselves. In a beautiful silver frame, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true. I love myself. The reason why I I picked this item, you know, I grew up in this really conservative religious family where being gay was like an issue. Coming out of the closet as a gay person was um, a huge issue for us. My father was a prominent minister. My mom was really devout and even more so in some ways than him. And growing up, I had had, I'd known that I liked boys since I was in like, kindergarten or first grade um and obviously you know you were doing figure skating a a lead figure skating they um, i assume they also knew that you liked boys or no well when i came out they were like well we're not surprised Uh but we would you know we would love to like maybe send you to reparative therapy or have you talk to someone oh I said no, and they were okay with that, but that I was... did not know that, and I've known you for a minute now. Yeah. Reparative therapy, is they, that what they're calling it? They asked if they could send me to it, and I was like, no. I was like, this is not going to be a boy-erased situation. Shout mm-hmm. out to Gerard Conley. I, I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, They even wanted to try and hook, hook me up, like have me meet with Donnie McClurkin, the... <gasps> The, yes. Yeah. So Donnie McClurkin is a prominent gospel singer who was gay and claims to now not be gay. Um, it's a lie. Uh-huh. But that's what they claim. As anyone like who is, is familiar with them would know. <laughs> Basically. Um, yeah. And so for figure, the reason why this picture is really important to me is because at the time at which I was figure skating, I'm so glad that participating in the sport came into my life when it did because I was figuring out my sexuality. I was in the process of coming out. I came out right actually around the time that this picture was taken, okay. maybe two months after it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was in August of 2002. And um, I came out, I think, in December of 2002. Okay. So the reason why this picture is really important to me is that when I, years later, when I was in college, um, and my relationship with my family in some ways was kind of fractured for a long time. And when I was in college, I was home for the holidays and my dad was an interim pastor of this church. And so he had an office in the church. And so I was just there and I went into his office and on his desk in this big office, um, there were 
pictures of our entire family, but one of the pictures of me was this photo. Oh, okay. And it meant so much to me because I have for a long time really struggled with the idea of whether or not my father is proud of me. Mm. And I had at that point too. Mm -hmm. And he could have put a picture of me doing all kinds of things on his desk. Mm -hmm. He could have put a picture of me playing the viola in an orchestra concert or a recital. He could have put like a class picture or Um, a a photoshopped you butching it up. Maybe (laughs) that is, I don't well. Can't, there's can no I, software can strong I really, enough to it does not exist. Dennis Norris the second nobody's junior. Adobe has not created that program <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, but it meant the world. I wasn't even figure skating at that point. Like I was, I think I was a junior or a senior in college. But it meant so much to me to see that this picture, which I had forgotten about, mm-hmm. um, was was on was not only present but it was on his desk. It was like close to him. Mm-hmm. And so a few years later, my father passed away pretty suddenly. And that's like a complicated thing that I'm working through in my fiction and I'm working through in my life. Um, Even though at this point he's been gone for seven and a half years, Mm. like those things change you forever. But um, at some point after he passed, maybe like a couple years later, I was home with my sister and we were doing something that we always do when we go home. We always make some time to do this because my dad was like pra- like a very organized hoarder. So we go through boxes and boxes mm. of like old just things, just like things. And so we'd come across Your dad's these, junk. But we would go through my dad's junk and there's plenty of it. Um, and so we came across some boxes of items that he had moved when he left that job moved back home and I saw this picture wrapped very carefully in cellophane. And so it was also very clear that it had been packaged lovingly and with the intent Mm. to protect it. Mm -hmm. And seeing that brought back that memory of walking into his office and seeing this picture and this representation of this part of me that at that moment was so long forgotten that I wouldn't have even thought about the idea that my parents would like remember it or think of it. And it was also a representation of me at a time that was really difficult in our, in our relationship and in our lives. Right. And it was there. And so I, I remembered all of that, that the, all that feeling, all that emotion came kind of flooding back to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to take this picture and it's always going to be in my home and in my apartment. And so usually it is there, but actually a few years ago I started working at an organization that um, works with figure skaters. And so now it's on my desk in my office. Right. As a way, so you're, you're doing something similar that your father did, which is like showing you off in a way that, yeah, but in a way that like, I think it sounds like it was really reparative. It, that's exactly, I think the way to look at it, it, um, it was reparative. It was just one moment where I remember knowing with a lot of certainty that my father was proud of me. Yeah. And when I say I struggle with that, like when I was a kid and I was like playing, you know, classical music and I was figure skating, whenever I got out either on the ice to compete, usually at the start of the warm up session, or whenever I took the stage as part of an orchestra, the first thing I would do while I was warming up was try to find my parents and find where they were sitting mm-hmm. and just like see them. And they knew that I did that and they would, you know, kind of wave or smile or whatever, just to know that they were there 
it always made me feel comfortable. And so I kind of moved through the world that way. And so when I came out of the closet um, and it felt like maybe they weren't going to be proud of me anymore, I internalized that in a really serious way. And this was a moment where I found relief yeah. from that yeah. when I saw this picture that time. Can I ask you some, a question? And, and feel free to, to, to not answer if it's like too mm-hmm. difficult. But what was it like going through your father's junk that, that first time? Because as somebody like, because I'm interested in people who are mm-hmm. either organized or disorganized hoarders, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. the people who, who actively sort of um, accumulate their, their, their like referential junk around them, mm-hmm. whether or not like it's like even functional anymore, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what do you remember thinking or do you remember anything like flooding you as you were going through it? So the thing about losing your dad when you're on the younger side of life, I was 24 and a half, or losing any parent or anyone that's older than you, is that, like, I, I like, thought I knew a lot about my dad. Mm. You know, growing up, you kind of think you know a lot about your parents because mm-hmm. you live with them and they're raising you. But as you begin to be an adult and you go through so many things, um, I think you begin to realize, or I began to realize, that there were so many things about my parents that I didn't know, right. that I wouldn't know. And because as a kid, you only, you're not concerned with that. When you're, yeah, when you're a younger person, you only ever see them as the caretaker, yep. as your parent, as, yep. as, as that sort of something godly in a way. Yep. And as that role changes, that's when you begin to see them differently. And so I, especially because this was at the beginning of me really seriously pursuing a writing career, so a lot of the inquisitiveness that I have now, I didn't necessarily have when I was 21, Mm -hmm. you know, or 22. And so I just remember going through all kinds of things and finding, like, receipts from the 60s Mm. or love letters that he wrote my mom um, when he was courting her or, like cassette tape recordings of sermons that he delivered in the 70s. Wow. Um, all all kinds of things. Pictures that didn't make it into all of our family, like, photo books of my, like, sib- my sisters when they were kids in the 70s or the 80s. And so I felt like I began to get a better sense of um, the, the quiet moments of my father's life, moments that wouldn't necessarily make it into the narrative that you're presenting your kids mm-hmm. about your past like things that had nothing to do with like where he went to college or what he majored in things that are just like oh like one time he like went to this gas station that doesn't exist anymore or Mm. one time or whatever you just find these like bits of information and it was interesting because the very i didn't so i didn't find this the very first time i did that i found it maybe the second or third but i i found one thing i found that was really wild um was that i found the sermon that my father was writing when he had the stroke that he died, he died from. Um, it, it had in years, it had not been moved from the pile of stuff that was under on our dining room table, which is where he was sitting where he, when he was writing that sermon. Uh, and that sermon had a title and the title was when the harvest comes. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's the title of my novel. Mm. Like, now I have the title of my novel. Mm. Um, yeah. So you just, I, lear- I learned so much. I, it was almost as though I felt like my parents had been these, like, like a penciled shaving of each other. Like, that's what they were in my head. Right. And when I go through this information, they, their image has texture, yeah. And color and 
personality. There's like whimsy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it brought, it brings things that happened long before they ever thought of me to life. Mm. And that's some trippy shit. I remember, mm-hmm. um, so my brother, I remember one time my brother, he was very, very little and he was taking a walk with my parents and I think he was like pointing out something and they were like, oh, that was there before you were born. And he was like, but I was always born. <laughs> oh my God. I but love it's such that. a cute thing I love for a kid that. to think, but, it, but that's the way you do think. Like, of course I've always been here. And so it sounds like what, what you got vis-a-vis um, going through your father's junk was a portrait of the person in their quieter moments, right? Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly what I got. And I think um, that still holds true to, I think, why I'm still working on the novel that I'm working on, which deals with a man that is sort of in his place in my head, um, is because I think when you're working on work that's related to someone that you've lost working on that work is a way of holding on to them. And once you finish it and you move on, Alex said this on an episode of food for thought when he was in the studio with us, Alex, Alexander Chi, the novelist. And when he said that it hit me so hard because I've been so frustrated with myself because I'm not finished yet. Um, and I was just like, Oh, there's some deeper shit connected to this too. Because then, because not only are you still holding on to this person who you're grieving, but then you're also giving him up and he mm-hmm. doesn't belong. That character doesn't belong to you anymore. Then right. it all of a sudden belongs to your audience. Yeah. There's a whole thing about um, writing that I think about, which is just this idea that it's, it's a very generous act of love. Um, I think if you're doing it in the right way, but regardless of that, it's something that you're giving to an audience that you have held close to you and protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it has been exclusive to you in this way hmm. for however long that you've been working on it. But I would like to think of it this way, if I may, mm. when you found the picture, when you found this picture, when you found your junk in the box and you said it was wrapped in cellophane as in something to be pl- dealt with carefully and protected. Mm-hmm. Right. But that taking it out of the cellophane, putting it on the desk, putting it out in the world yeah. was then a way of like re- reflecting it was a way of appreciating it, the junk, but then also mm-hmm. um, sharing that appreciation with other people. And I do think that's what you're going to be doing with your writing as well. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for that junk, Dee. Thank you. Oh, my God. Ah, thank you for that story, Dennis. Next up, I'm going to read a section from my book, Junk, ending the show as I always do. And just for a little bit of context, a breakup has just happened. The cover is up to our shoulders. We lay in the couch bed of our preconceptions, separating, not steady walk back to the land where I don't know you. Took you long fucking enough. Now I'm stupid and sugar-free and frothing. The only thing harder than writing is quitting candy. And the only thing harder than quitting candy is walking all day and buttering to bed in my body. But now that I'm fully inhabiting my cement, I'm closer to the sacral joy of thinking into my ribcage. Convention says a book should be this long, but I'm only interested in writing as long as you want to read in one sitting. My aura is a strawberry shortcake dessert bar and the popular American corn snack bunions. My safe word is go to hell, Katy Perry, pronounced Caddy. 
I'm writing a sitcom about butts and counting. It's called Number Two. The tagline is turn the other cheek. Most times I'm a maniac. Other times losing an arm wrestling match. Sitting for longer and longer but paying less and less attention evolutionarily is a load easier to swallow with we as in we've known for centuries that time is a bossy bird curdler (gasps) protrude from the green and calling it bud sometimes you need to read something more than once my joint is mary jane the theme is harmony of a gradient let's hold hands and walk to the water taxi and matching tank tops but we call the tank tops wedges and the wedges are a chip witch and our cherry cokes are a summer afternoon where we can't do nothing but lean into the grass at the carousel park in dumble with the lap of the river and the dollhouse of lower manhattan face fucking us while we neck and later face fuck feeling peaked roused amused buy the book online or at a fine or frankly trashy bookshop near you Junk is produced by Alexandra De Palma with production assistance by Kenya Anderson Kenya tell the good folks where to find you hi folks what's up it's kenya and i'd like to give a shout out to my instagram it's at kenya dig it teebs will you do a dramatic reading for the people at k-e-n-y-a underscore d-i-g-g underscore (laughs) i-t I'm Tommy Pico, and you can find me in hell. Our theme music is a cover of Fotos y Recuerdos by Downtown Boys. Thanks for letting us use it. And you can follow us on Instagram to see pics of all the junk we mentioned in this episode at Junk Podcast. We're brought to you each week by the publisher So Hot. It's like Fahrenheit 69 in this bitch. Tin House Books. Thanks for sticking around. Stay good. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.